Welcome back to Upfront, the podcast with me, Katie Hannan. As we record this, we are awaiting the release of hostages under a temporary lull in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. We can't know what conditions those hostages are being held in or indeed how they are being treated by their captors. But my guest this week does have first-hand experience of what it's like to be a hostage in a conflict zone. My guest is Theo Padnos. Theo is a journalist who was kidnapped by Islamist militants with ties to Al-Qaeda in Syria in 2012 and he was held there for two years. Again, it's important to say that this experience is his and it was in circumstances where his captors believed he was a CIA spy. So his situation may be very different to the situation being experienced by hostages in Gaza today. Okay, so obviously, Theo, we're talking to you today because, you know, the whole world really is waiting for these hostages to uh, be released in Gaza, from Gaza. Um, In many ways, I think the story of these hostages has kind of slipped into the background while we've all been watching these horrific scenes of the airstrikes and and what's been happening on the ground in Gaza. Uh, But no doubt you have been thinking about those hostages all the way through this. Of course, yeah. The, my perspective is the perspective of the hostage. I, you know, there's military operations happening in the background, um, but I'm concerned with the human beings that they, they that, that they can rescue if they wanted to. But listen, these people are undergoing a, a horrific experience, and if they emerge without emotional scars for the rest of their lives, you know, with their lives intact. Um, I'm not sure that their psychology will be intact. Okay, well, that's why we want to talk to you, Theo, because obviously you've been there. You've been through all of this in the most extreme circumstances. So take us back. Will you just take us right back uh, to 2012? What are you doing in Turkey in 2012 uh, near the the Syrian border? Right. Well, at at the time, well, I was and still am a freelance journalist, and I was um, hoping to report on the... um, kind of a, um, an incipient rebellion, which was gathering steam uh, um, in Syria, apparently. There were some, there were rumors and some videos of extremists on the ground in Syria. But at the time, many reporters were traveling in and out of the rebel-controlled areas and being received like little princes and, you know, squired around from this interview to that interview and thanked for their contribution to journalism. And, you know, it it, it was looking relatively safe. There had been, I was the first journalist um, to to disappear um, in, in, into the hands of the rebels. There had been some that were arrested by the Syrian government you know, when they were in government-controlled territory. But for the most part, the rebel-controlled territory was welcoming environment for journalists. So I, I went in and right away I fell into the hands of the rebels and they um, imprisoned me. And- you actually went with the rebels, didn't you? You thought these people were, were smuggling you in so you could do yeah, some I, mean, I, I met some young men from Syria in Turkey and they said, oh yes, we're, we are fixers or freelance journalists ourselves and we help Westerners come and carry out their reporting. And not long after we had crossed the border, they said, no, in fact, we're not fixers or anything. We're members of the Al-Qaeda organization. These young men turned out to be like um, wannabes or play acting at terrorism. They said, you know, we love Sheikh bin Laden. But when I met the actual terrorists, which I did in subsequent days, they were like, who are those losers that are pretending to be us? 
give us their names and addresses and you know, we're going to bring them in for questioning. So um, in this environment, as I'm sure is the case in Gaza, there's tremendous rage and just outrage over um, the airstrikes. When you airstrike a population, it causes anger and outrage and, and um, you know, a, a widespread feeling of impotence because nobody can catch the airplanes. There's nothing you can do. The airplanes are at like 30,000 feet. It, it these airstrikes like it, it really does do a number on the psychology of a population. What happened when I went into Syria was that when I had been there before uh, living in Aleppo, people had welcomed me as if I was like a prince or king. You know, I couldn't pay for the taxis, the tea, nothing. And when I came back, they said, "Come right here, come right over here," and a whack in the head. It's quite a different thing, you know. Okay, go back to yourself. You you've been captured. Initially, I, I assume you you were regarding it as like a temporary setback. You you didn't really realize what you where you were, or what you were getting into. Well, here here's what happened. In my case, I was captured by these wannabe terrorists. I escaped from them and right away. And this because I sort of psyched them out a little bit. Like we were sleeping, I slipped out of a pair of handcuffs. Automatically, they assumed I was this genius crack CIA agent guy who could kind of mind um, you know control their minds, basically, and also um, escape from handcuffs like Houdini, which I did escape from their stupid handcuffs because they didn't lock them properly. And I ran away, um, and right away they were like, wow, what a, here, here we got um, the, like the you know, Tom Cruise kind of CIA character, is who they assumed that I was. And so they brought in the proper Al-Qaeda people, and those people um, were, they know how to be tortured properly. And I like the amateurs that I first ran into, amateur torture, no, I Right away, um, I was aware that I was in the hands of people from Iraq. Um, they told me so, and I could recognize from their accents. And they don't speak Syrian Arabic; they speak Iraqi Arabic, quite different. And of course, they told me. And you know, they had been in American detention um, in in um, in in a camp called Camp Buka in in Basra in Iraq. And anyway, the, my first serious interrogator was the was uh, this guy character called Mohammed Adnani, who, who he was like the architect of the Bataclan attacks in Paris. He was the character who, who um, organized the on-camera immolation of the Jordanian pilot Moaz Kasaspe. A very, he was like an incredible film director. Really. He might not have been much of a military authority, but he had an astonishing ability to make these movies. You know, he, he was on the, he was on every newscast, his films, um, eventually were on every newscast and gave him a tremendous authority within the Islamic State. Anyway, he was my first interrogator. This character is quite psychotic. And his, his, um, you know, the, the way that it was just a, a collection of him, a few, he's a Syrian guy, a few Iraqis and a few French kids. And they said to me, like, I wasn't allowed to speak. I, I had my handcuffs behind my back. I was blindfolded. But I had to lie in a corner. If I, if I moved, then I had punishment. Um, at, you know, at once a day, I was like, I need to use the bathroom. But when I used the bathroom, there was incredible violence just on the way back to the to the bathroom and back. Then I lay in will my you say, so, Will you say I was punished or there was punishment there or incredible violence? What could you just what exactly? I mean, they're are they're we using talking? electricity. They're using like these uh, cable whips. They have just truncheons. Imagine, you know, kind of a, 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 a nightstick that has like barbed wire on the end. So they whack you with that thing. It shuts you up pretty quickly. You know, the, it, it, you feel like 
Yeah, you, you, you don't necessarily. I, I felt that they were in the process of killing me over a period of days. It was my like psychological experience of this. I wasn't at all. I didn't think I was going to survive. Well, um, were you but, physically injured during this time? Like very physically, yeah, like seriously course. physically injured. Yeah, and this is my part with the Israeli hostages. It's like I don't believe that they're all held by a single authority. Uh, there are many people who are outraged and furious who are around them, who are perhaps acting on their own. You know, many people have access to the cells because these people have to be fed. Perhaps the cells don't have bathrooms in them. So the so on the way to the bathroom is an extraordinarily dangerous time for the hostage because all these bystanders who are outraged and not necessarily under the authority of the, whatever authority there is, have access to the bodies of these poor people. And they're outraged. They're impotent and outraged and they have weapons. It's not a healthy situation for anybody. But, you know, imagine imagine in, in Gaza with so many families being being destroyed, just wiped off the face of the planet, and everybody is indignant and, and outraged, and in my view, rightfully so. And they don't have anybody to take out their aggressions on, except these people that they, many of the hostages, probably a majority of them, they're going to say, you are functionally... Um, you know, part of the Israeli army because everybody does serve. So except for the old old women and the kids, they're going to say, no, no, you're part of the, the the terrorizing force that's doing this to our families. We've got to punish you. Anyway, yeah, in my case, um, in my case, they, uh, they they were just so violent with me that I, I assumed that their process was to subject me to a certain degree of punishment over a period of time. And then when the emir or the pasha or the you know, whatever Sheikh was in charge of my destiny, he was going to say, this person, we've punished him enough and now let's just kill him, which is what they did with James Foley and the other um, ISIS detainees. Like the psychological torture of this situation where you don't know how long it's going to go on for how much you must endure, what, you know, when the end might come, when the next pain will come. How do yeah, you're you in keep your head you together? You're in a blindfold, so you can't see who's hitting you. You don't know. Um, oftentimes, you know, they'll bring you into a room in a blindfold. You can feel, they can hear the people breathing around you. You know they have weapons. You know this happened to you before. And it's like, what, is the blow going to come from behind your head, in front? Is it going to be to your lower body, to your back? You just don't know. So for there were times when they would bring me into a room, and I would be like, go like this. But they would hit me here. And I would go like that, and then they would hit me here. I couldn't see. So... Yeah, it's listen. They do this for a reason. There, there, there is a, there is a, a, a the reason that they um, subject you to such a degree of disorientation. In my view, is that they're trying to, like, cause you to give up on on yourself, on who you have been, your whole identity. You know, they never called me by my name for two years, um, and part of the purpose of that is because they believe that you have led a wicked life. As an unbeliever and as a, um, you know, somebody who's been involved in the the dunya, that the, the the world of here and now of, of getting and spending, and they want you to orient yourself towards God. Um, so it it's not just sex and violence, although they assume that we do a lot of that too. Um, you know, illicit sex and 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 wicked kinds of um, you know gratuitous violence. They think that our whole lives is that. But anyway, they want us. They want to remake your your whole psychology, and they do this by causing you to die to the self that you came into jail with. And then, after some months of darkness and disorientation, you wake up as a new creature with a different orientation. And by the way, 
when they when they come into your cell and they say they give you like two olives instead of one or they you know they're kind to you somehow like they they will say would you like a shower you know you're grateful for that it's it's they are the source of your new life and out of you know they are going to provide you with the with the means with which to live and you are like i want to live okay what do i got to do and um you know they 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 would like this is how they gain power over a population. Basically, we wonder how, how does how does Hamas get elected in Gaza? It's because everybody is living at, in an extreme condition, and Hamas controls the food and the um, you know they 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 control the medicine and possibly also the escape routes. And you you want to orient yourself towards that power because that is the source of life. There must have been times though where you must have thought death would be preferable to this. Yes, of course, yeah. People say, how, how did you, you must have great emotional fortitude. And it's like, no, I wanted to die. I, if I had had a gun or a cyanide pill or whatever, I would, I would not be here. I would literally, literally did try. I was in a cell with like, um, I don't want to go into the whole details of like, I don't know why I don't. It's very, it's, I guess it may be a little personal, but um, I, I couldn't manage to, to end my life, though I wanted to, and I did try. I didn't have the courage, maybe, to grab their guns, or I did. I, but I, I certainly felt that I owed it to myself because what they were going to do to me. They, you know, they, when you, when you're in the presence of these people, it's like you, you know what they're doing to the other people. You can hear, and you're like, I can't allow that to happen to me. I have to do it in my own terms. So, and, and that's the way they cause you to you, you give up on life. Did you believe that they believed they were doing God's work? Of course. Yeah. You know, all but the very highest, most cynical of them. And there are a few of those people. But you, you're dealing with 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, and they believe that they are in a struggle of a combat of, of good versus evil. And and they believe that they're on the good side. In fact, they're very kind to one another. You know, you can see the affection that they with which they deal with them and the language with which they kind of treat one another and, and their elders. Um, it's not like being captured by a, a group of savages that just beat you for no reason. They have procedures and laws and, um, you know, they're, they just, they're, it's a lawful kind of, kind of auto da fe kind of inquisition rather than a random chaotic being captured by torn apart by wolves, which is what it feels like at first. But after, no, no, these, these are like hyenas that have a law and a procedure and a sense of right and wrong. And, and by the way, you know, yeah, they, they don't know. Um, and there's some, there's an instinct within them that tells them, Hey, torturing is bad, but they do it anyway. Um, and, and the, the, like the trick or the, the purpose of the Spiritual authorities there is to override that impulse that says, spare this person, he's just innocent. And they eventually do. But there's a natural instinct that kicks in among so many young people. Like, I don't want to do this. Were you able to communicate with, with your captors? Did you have the language, common language, enough common language yeah. to communicate? Arabic. I've studied Arabic and did for you years. Have, did you have like philosophical conversations with them? Were you able to, to have those yeah, you're dealing with you're dealing with people who have very little education. These are many of these young men have been through the um, a kind of a remedial education that gives them that they get their news from the Quran. These are real fundamentalist religious people. So when it says there's going to be an earthquake coming, they're like, 
Does it give the time? You know, what's the weather forecast? It says that the, there'd be an apocalypse. Okay, you know, when? Like they believe the scientists are looking at the moon and the sun to tell them about when the end of the world is coming. And they just need to check with the scientists, um, who they call the ulema. And those these guys will tell you, will inform you more deeply about the end of the world. But anyway, it's coming. Talk to me then about the day you were told you, you were free, that you were going to be released. Did you have notice of it? Um, there were rumors. There was rumors that Qatar was involved in the, these negotiations for freeing me and so certain you know, quantities of money were mentioned, but they had been telling me, you know, so often they say good things are going to happen then nothing good happens. You get transferred from one prison to the next and you think you're going home and you're not. Um, so I, I was either ready to be transferred to a different prison or to be taken out to the field and shot. You know, I, I knew that I, I knew that my uh, the other prisoners were so often being killed. I'm like, they're not going to let me go after all this. So I was skeptical, but hopeful. And how were you told? Who told you? The chief terrorist, um, who was an important terrorist for an Iraqi guy, who's like, uh, I'm sending you home to your mama today. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, whatever, I'll, I'll go and see. Then they brought me some new clothes. They went to the shop and brought me new clothes. I'm like, they wouldn't do this to do it. just kind of kill me. I mean, why would they put me in new clothes? But, you know, a week before they had been, they were they, the same guy was telling me, I'm going to shoot you with my own hand. I will do it, he said. So you really don't, you don't believe it until it happens. And even when it does happen, then you're, um, this can't be happening. And how do you cope with it then? Because that well, in itself is a trauma, isn't it? It, You know, it is, uh, for me, like a terrorist organization is a cult. And you, I developed a, a, a cult personality, a cult self, a second self that could easily get along with the people in the cult. And I accepted my second self, just as they do, by the way. You know, let's, we got to kill the Jews. I, when they said that, of course, I would say. Um, we've got to, you know, we've got to show the world that we're not really terrorists. We're actually freedom. freedom for, when you go home, you will do this. Of course, I told them. And my second self was kind of at home. And then as soon as I left, I re retrieved my first self, like Theo. And I was okay with Theo being Theo too. I can negotiate that world. So I, I, um, you know, I, I returned to my original self. It wasn't that, it wasn't that complicated because he never really died. Can you remember a moment though, where you realized, oh my God, I am actually free. This is it. It's over. This, this horrific yeah. well, thing is over. Um, yeah, it was not for the first 24 hours. It was not real. It was like, I, I kept thinking that. I was going to wake up and go back. And oftentimes when I did wait, I was sleeping, you know, in the first days after my release, I woke up and I'm like, okay, oh I'm back in prison. And the whole freedom thing was a dream. The first two seconds of my waking, I was like, oh, damn, I'm back in prison. And then I looked around, oh, I'm not in prison anymore. The first few weeks, every person I saw on the street, I'm like, he's probably a terrorist. I was in Israel. They, they let me go in Israel. I was looking at all these Israeli guys. I'm like, that guy, he's not a real Israeli. He's an he's a Al Qaeda guy. So I didn't trust anybody. And yeah. And even when I came back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, these journalists were like following me around. I'm like, that guy's definitely Al Qaeda. But they were just journalists. <laughs> just journalists. Uh, um, 
I know you've been writing about the people uh, who are today being held in in uh, in Gaza, and obviously it's been six weeks now for them. And we know that they would have witnessed, most likely witnessed some horrific scenes on the the October seventh day when they were captured. What might you know put put yourselves? And I'm sure you do this. You do think about them and what's in their heads. It's we don't know. Have will they know? Will they be in a position to have heard the rumors that that they were about to be released? How do you prepare yourself? I mean, I think that they're underground, and I think that a lot of them are probably, you know, their vision is obscured. That's an important thing for these people, for the captors, is to like disorient you enough so that you you don't know which way is up. But I, I also th- some of them are being held, you know, among themselves. Um, and so that they can talk to each other. And um, some of them are probably isolated. I just think that uh, uh, they're not under a central authority, I assume, because when the on October 7th, when that wall came down, just crowds and crowds of people streamed across, and some people were bringing back, like, you know, stoves and refrigerators, and some people were bringing back people. And each one of these items has a value in that society that can be hawked for something else, like exchanged. So there'll be a lot of, um, you know, horse trading with the refrigerators and the microwaves and the people. And it will take a while for the central authority to figure out where all the microwaves and all the people are. And um, so we, I, I assume that when, when the media and the governments are saying we're negotiating for the release of these people, they're negotiating with a few captors that have a few people, but they're not negotiating for all 239 vanished human beings. The way to the, to begin those negotiations is to stop the violence and let you know you gotta. You, you, there's, in my view, there's just there's no incentive for the people to to um the captors to let their captives go if all they're gonna get is a respite of a day or two. They're like, we don't care. You know that 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 the thing where they say we're indifferent to death. That's true. They're not kidding about that. It's really true. Like they, when they're underground and the bombs are coming from above. Those people have an insouciant and indifferent attitude towards death, and it's it's very dangerous for the captives. And the other thing, of course, is that we we know that uh, this some of those hostages that will be released, particularly if it's women and children, will be leaving some family members and loved ones behind. Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine that. If I often felt that I. You know, the one is in such situation, or I was in such a situation. I felt I didn't want to leave my fellow people behind. Um, but I like I'm a man. But I, I think hopefully the people that come out and right away are going to be young women, um, young kids and women, and hopefully they'll just run away because they got to save themselves. The language, I mean. The language that Hamas have, are using to talk about October 7th, again, I know you've been writing about this, that it's very familiar to you. The, you know, the idea of the attack is a force of nature or a flood. Yeah, well, they're referring to a particular flood. It's the flood in the Bible, the Quran, that washes away all the dreck and filth and corruption of the world. It's God's punishment. And they believe that God um, ha- has been arranging a punishment for Israel for some time. And they're just waiting for God to deliver this punishment for all the horrible things they've done in the past. So um, they, now that this great attack has come, they're like, yes, this is the flood that will wash them away once and for all. That's their like apocalyptic dream is to 
the, of the attackers, not the whole Gazan society, but the people that um, got on those motorcycles with the rocket propelled grenades and the Kalashnikovs and came into the uh, Israeli kibbutz, kibbutz and murdered the moms and dads. Those people are hoping to annihilate Israel. Yeah, and, and they believe that they're acting on behalf of God and that they incarnate like it's actually a force superior to nature because it governs events in nature. And they believe that you know, they are acting on that behalf. And then on the other side of that, you have Benjamin Netanyahu using language like talking about the conflict as a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. So he is also feeding this notion of a clash of civilizations here. Um, as a hostage, one wants to be spared from, from the men. It's like, it's never the women that have these like apocalyptic black and white points of view. You know, the women you can talk to, but the men are like good and evil, night and day, um, kill life. And you just like, get, get, spare me these horrible men. Where do you think this is going for that whole region? And you're very familiar with that region generally. Well, I, and I, I know, you know. My, my personal view is that in order to save these lives, the hostage, hostage takers, the captors, they're going to let the women and children go um, because, because, the, because God has told them to, basically. And they would, do, they would have done that weeks ago. Um, and they're just waiting for some kind of safe passage for, to allow the, so the bombing will stop and return the women and kids. They're not going to let anybody else go unless they advance their own war aims, which are um, significant. You know, they want, they want important concessions. They, they they really want the moon. I mean, if you if you were to ask the the chief the, the highest authority there, um, like what does he want? He would tell you, um, he would he would propose some terms of a settlement that nobody that would be a non-starter. As long as the violence continues, it's going to be a, a an excruciating time for the hostage families and for the hostages themselves. When the violence finally stops. Hopefully the violence that these hostages, these innocent people are experiencing will also abate. But I suspect that, you know, that those people are experiencing living terror. So they, it was really a precarious situation, which I feel that the outside world doesn't quite reckon with. It hasn't, you know, understand, they don't understand just how we think we can bomb a city and that the hostages will be like, eh, it's happening above us. But that's not the case you know, it's it's happening on their, it, it could be happening in their cells. I mean, these people could be, they could be a lot more killed than we know or injured. We just don't know. And there's no way to get medical treatment um, or the medical treatment is inadequate. It's just, it's an agonizing situation for the entire Gaza population and particularly for the hostages. And that was Theo Padnos. Thanks for listening to Upfront, the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can message us on social media at RTE Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 0876771000. And don't forget to tune into Upfront on Monday evening at 10.35 on RTE One and on the RTE Player. And I will talk to you then. Bye.